first reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 to 17. It can be found on page 1191 of the Pew Bibles. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. And the second reading is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. It's on page 1048. The parable of the lost sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering round to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, shall we pray? So gracious God, show us your ways and teach us your paths. For you are God our Saviour and our hope is in you all days long. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So why don't we have that passage open on page 1,048 and 49, as we look at it to, to, together. Because this morning what I want us to, to try and get a glimpse from, from, from this passage, if you like, is to understand, understand a message of, if you like, how much people who are lost matter to God, by almost showing you, if you like, something of the reckless love of God, 
the extent to which he will go to search after and try to call that lost sheep until they're found by him. That's what I want us to try and get a a picture of this morning. How much people who are lost matter to God and the extent to which he will just try and demonstrate and show his love to those people who don't know him until they're found by him. This is what I mean by when I use the word lost. I mean quite literally those people who do not have a relationship with him. Quite literally, I mean those people who are not in a a Christian community. If you like, that's the reason why Jesus came, because if we were to flick over a few more pages in this particular gospel, we would get to the story of Zacchaeus, and where Jesus would say, the reason why I came was to seek and save the lost. Then, by reckless love, I mean this. I mean the way that God will just unconditionally and extravagantly lavish his love no matter what the personal cost to himself no matter what the risk no matter how safe it might be no matter how much what he would look like or what people think about him he will just continue to show his reckless love it doesn't mean that God is crazy but often the way that he shows his love and sometimes the way that he shows his love To some people, we look at and we think, that just doesn't make sense. But that's what I mean by reckless love. And he will do that. He will keep pursuing until the very last moment that it's possible for anyone on this earth to be found by him. Because if we were to turn over this particular gospel a few more pages from Zacchaeus, and we'd see that Jesus is on the cross, we'd hear the story of the penitent thief who's hung next to Jesus saying, Jesus, remember me in paradise. So that's what I mean by by reckless love. And this is what I mean by found. I mean those people who have realized, who have grasped that they've been found by Jesus and through some act of repentance, they've decided to live in relationship with him and to journey with him. So those are, if you like, the definitions of what I mean by lost, what I mean by reckless love, and what I mean by found. And that's quite important that we understand that as we start to get into this particular story. So if we, if we look at it together and we, we read what happens, we can see that there are two groups of people there listening to Jesus. Here's the first group. This is what it says in my translation. It calls them the tax collectors and the sinners. So here's the tax collectors. Nobody liked the tax collectors in Jesus' day. If you like, it's a bit like today, isn't it? Nobody likes the tax collectors, do they? You know, you go to a party with someone, and you say to them, oh, what do you do? And you say that you're a tax collector. That's a bit of a conversation stopper, isn't it? It's nearly as bad as going to a party and saying you're a priest. Not quite as bad as the tax collector, but that's just about it. You know, tax collectors, they weren't liked. They really weren't liked in Jesus' day. They weren't cared for because they were immoral. They were corrupt. They, if you like, collected money for the enemy. And as a result of that, it meant that they were kind of ostracized from society. That was the tax collectors. The sinners, what do we mean by the, by the sinners? Well, Nobody really knows what we mean by the sinners. 
You know, I've read six commentaries on this particular passage from Luke's Gospel, and nobody can really give me an accurate description. The best I can get to is this, that they were probably some of the poorest members of society who were viewed by, shall we say, the religious establishment as, if you like, hopelessly irreligious. They were, if you like, what they were. So you've got the tax collectors, you've got the sinners, almost like those who were ostracized from society, and yet they were coming near, we read, to Jesus. You see, from the outset of his ministry, if we were to to start at the beginning of Luke's gospel and go all the way through it, we would find how these type of groups of people, the marginalized, the ostracized from society, the tax collectors, were almost welcomed in by by Jesus. And we know this is true because if we were to turn back a few pages, we would see that one of Jesus' most famous followers was a tax collector, Levi. If we were to turn over a few pages from this one, we'd know that Zacchaeus, and the story of Zacchaeus, what was that? Who was Zacchaeus? He was a tax collector. And what Jesus, and then one of Jesus' most famous parables a few more pages after this was he tells the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And he juxtaposes their two attitudes to God together. And so they're the tax collectors. They're the scribes. But then we read there, sorry, the the sinners. And then we read, though, there are the Pharisees. And the scribes, in my translation, if you like, the, the teachers of the law. Well, we know perhaps from what the Pharisees were. They were the, if you like, the biggest pressure group in society. They were, if you like, the rabbis. There would have been some legal experts in there. There would be some priests in there as well. They were the Pharisees. The scribes, if you like, or the teachers of the law. Well, they were writers. You know, in a culture when not many people could write, they were very important people. They were often lawyers. They were seen as the legal experts. And so it's not surprising, kind of like today, is it? They were a bit like the establishment. They worked together. They partied together, kind of scene. That's who the Pharisees and the scribes were. And from the kind of outset of his ministry, whereas Jesus, if you like, welcomed almost like the ostracized and the marginalized, the Pharisees and the scribes, it seems like Jesus was always in conflict with them. You know, so if we were to turn back a few pages in Luke's gospel to chapter 5, we would find that there's some hostility starting to grow between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes because Jesus claims to be God which in their eyes was, was blasphemy. Then if we read on a bit more, when Jesus heals on a Sabbath, once more he comes into conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes. And then when Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house and eats with them in Luke chapter 13, the conversation turns very heated and hostile. To the extent that if we were to turn over a few pages to when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in Luke 19, we know the Pharisees and the scribes are leading the campaign to kill him. That's the Pharisees. That's the scribes. 
And of course, one of the very reasons that Jesus was in conflict with them was because he spent so much time with the tax collectors and with the sinners. And that's what's happening here, isn't it? If we look at it in verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, both of them, if you like, had a prevailing view on God and what God was like. This was, if you like, a one-sentence summary of what the scribes and the Pharisees viewed of God. God loves us because we're religious. God loves who I am because I'm good. And kind of contrast that with the view of the tax collector and the sinner. Their default view on God was this. God can't love us because we're sinners. God can't love me because I'm not good enough. That was what Jesus was challenging. That was what was putting him in conflict so much with the Pharisees and the scribes and almost like why the tax collectors and the sinners who were kind of drawn towards Jesus were, were, were listening to. That was what was drawing them in. Because they thought they weren't good enough for God's love. And he was showing them something different. Whereas the Pharisees and the scribes thought that they were good enough. And of course we know both views are false, don't we? We know both views are false because God loves everybody. Because God is love, full stop. And so we read to get his message across. Jesus tells the Pharisees and the scribes. A story, a parable. And as he's telling this, this parable, I want you to kind of imagine that the tax collectors and sinners, they're gathered around as well, and they're, they're listening too to, to what's going on. Now remember, the most helpful explanation I've ever heard about what a parable is, it is a story, but it's a bit more than that, is to actually think of the word parable itself. Now, of course, we all know what the Greek word para means, don't we? At last, one yes. I got no yeses at eight o'clock. We all know because we've all spent six weeks looking at it. We know that the word para means to be with, to come alongside. Whereas bole means to throw. So what a parable is, is this. Jesus would take an everyday story, something that would be highly familiar, like a shepherd looking after his sheep in first century Palestine. And what he would do is he would just throw alongside it a statement of what God's kingdom is like. Or something about what heaven is like. Or something about what judgment might be like. Or something like what grace would be about to explain it. That's what he would do. He would just throw alongside an everyday picture that everyone would be familiar with to show them something of what God's kingdom is like. And that's what he does here. And he asks them a question. He kind of raises the ante, doesn't he? He says, well, imagine you've got a shepherd and you've got a hundred sheep. What that means is that you're, 
you're not a rich shepherd, but you're not a poor shepherd. You're kind of an, an average shepherd, shall we say, and you've got a, a hundred sheep. And let's say what happens is you lose one of them. What are you going to do? And Jesus, by his, by his question, implies, of course, what you're going to do is you're going to go and look for that one lost sheep. They're all new shepherds. They'd all seen them out and about in the countryside. Didn't matter whether it was Galilee. Didn't matter whether it was outside of Jerusalem or everywhere in between. They'd all seen shepherds. And they'd all seen shepherds maybe at the beginning of the day. It might have been in the middle of the day. It might have been at the end of the day. And they're kind of in the open countryside. And they start counting their sheep. One, two, three, four, five, ninety-six, ninety-seven, ninety-eight, ninety-nine, one. Oh, I can't count to one hundred. And so you think, well, a hundred's a, a lot of sheep, isn't it? Maybe I've miscounted, so you start again. One, two, three, four, ninety-seven, ninety-eight, ninety-nine, one. Oh, one's missing. So maybe... If you're that type, you go and count again. And then you suddenly realize there's one missing. They've just wandered off because that's what sheep do, don't they? They just wander off. So what do you do? Jesus would say, well, surely what you would do is you would, you would leave the 99. You would leave the 99 in the open country. Maybe no one's looking after the 99. While you go off and you search for that one lost sheep. You know, it doesn't matter about the maths, does it? It doesn't matter that, well, 99 is still quite a good number. It's only one that's lost. You go and search after that one. It doesn't matter, well, well what might happen to the 99 if I go after the one? They might get eaten by wolves. Some of them might get stolen. Some of them might, might wander off. I might come back and I might find that I've lost another 23. We read that you would go and find the one. And we read that when he finds the one, he lays it on his shoulders, if you like, and rejoices. He's so happy, isn't he? Maybe the, the sheep had got injured at some stage. Maybe the sheep had got exhausted and had got worried. Maybe the sheep had got scared with, with panic. So we read the shepherd picks the sheep up. Think about that image. Lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. He's so happy. I mean, we all know this, don't we? Because we all know what it's like to have something that's special, that's precious to us. And then we, then we lose it, don't we? In whatever way, and then we find it again. And we're so happy, aren't we? Or maybe that's just me. You know what it's like to lose something that's valuable. 
and then to find it again. It's almost like the rediscovery is better than the first place that you, you had it in the first place. But it doesn't end there, does it? Because the shepherd isn't just content that he's found his lost sheep and he's just happy. He wants to tell everyone, everyone, all his friends, all his family members, whoever else wants to join in, he wants to tell everyone his good news. He can't keep it to himself. And you know that too, don't you? You know that feeling of, of having something and losing something and then finding it again. And not only you're so happy that you can't keep it to yourself, you've got to tell somebody else, whatever it may be. And then Jesus says to the Pharisees and the scribes and the tax collectors and the sinners listening, that is exactly not quite what it's like in the kingdom of heaven. That's not exactly quite like what God feels and how happy God is when something like that happens. What we read is we read there will be more joy. In other words, God isn't just pleased. He's ecstatic. No matter how joyful you might be happy that the thing that you'd lost, that you've suddenly found again, and no matter how many people you want to tell, God is even more happier when someone who is lost from him and that he pursues with his reckless love is then found by him and through some act of repentance comes to live in relationship with you. You know, as we look at this parable and if we think about it, you know, another one of the most helpful ways that I've heard about what a parable is like is this, is to imagine the parable as a picture. We can maybe imagine how this picture works out. And then from that picture... picture becomes a mirror. And we start to see how we might be in this parable. And then from that mirror, to kind of see a window of really what God is like. You see, I wonder as we, we look at the picture of this particular story, do you ever ask, well, who's the 99? Or who's the one? Or who's God in the parable? Or imagine if you're one of the groups listening to this picture. Do you think, who do you think their thought were the 99? Who do you think their thought were the one? Who do you think their thought might be God? Or maybe as we, we look at the the parable this morning and if we like see it then as a mirror and look at ourselves you know do any of us see us as the one lost sheep who's never been rescued by Jesus do we see ourselves as the 99 Where might our view of God's love be misplaced? 
because we could still all fall into that trap that God will only love me if I'm good or I'm not good enough for his love. Or where might our attitude to people who don't know Jesus be out of sync with God's? In other words, we kind of get comfortable and we think, well, 99's enough. And then as we kind of turn from looking at this parable as a mirror to start to look at it through a window, do we see the extent to which people who don't know God matter to him? Of the steps that he would take and go to. You see, I think whoever we are, we should never get sanitized to, if you like, that we were all at one stage that lost sheep in Jesus' story. We were all lost in our own sin, if you like, to God. Because at the heart of the gospel is God's reckless love. For each of us. You know, if we, if we think about the big story of the Bible for a minute, this is why Jesus came, wasn't it? This is why Jesus came because, and why he left heaven was because ever since Eden, when we were expelled from the garden because of our rebellion against him, and we were the ones wandering around in the wilderness like lost sheep, what the truth of the gospel reminds us of. Whether we saw ourselves as righteous sinners like the Pharisees or the scribes or whether we saw ourselves as rebellious sinners like the tax collectors or the sinners is immaterial. The most important thing is that we've realized and we've become rescued sinners. Because no matter who we are, we were all once that lost sheep. We all lived without loving Jesus. With all of our hearts and souls and minds and our strength with, and loving our neighbours, ourselves, we all lived our lives without reference to him. And for all of our time on this earth, whether it was only as a three-year-old or whether it happened when we were 73, he was searching after us, calling us by name to come to him. See, that's the heart of the gospel. This is how I've heard it best explained in the words of Tim Keller. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's what our epistle reading was saying, wasn't it? In Paul's first letter to the Timothy, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save the sinners of which... Paul was saying, I am the foremost. Or as Jesus would say a few pages later in Luke's gospel to Zacchaeus, the reason I came was to seek and save the lost because it was Jesus, the good shepherd, who came as the sacrificial sheep and was raised up for you and me. Raised up on his shoulders by the weight of the lostness of our sin on the cross. You see, that's how God rescued us. And he goes on searching for each one of us until we recognize that. Until we repent. 
if you like, of that. And so this morning, as we finish, I want to leave us with this question. Thinking of the, the picture, the mirror, and then the window. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who feels you're that lost sheep in Jesus' story and he calls you home to relationship with him. But then for each of us, what message does Jesus' story have for us as a church? You see, in my curiosity, I, I read, amongst other things, one book that I kind of keep going back to now and again. And it's one particular chapter that always reminds me, because we get so out of sync with it, is that every church, no matter who it is, has three natural flaws. And one of them is this, that if it's left to its own devices just turns inwards and starts to focus upon me and those inside rather than outside. And so what does it mean as a church for you and me, as Jesus' body in this community, in this island, to just show that reckless love of God to those who are lost that they might be found in him? Let us pray. I want us to think for a moment before I I, I say this prayer to think right. To maybe think, God, am I that lost sheep this morning? Where Jesus is saying to you, He's calling your name. And He's calling you to. Come and live in relationship with him. And if you are that one person, maybe you might speak to me or Brian afterwards. But now I want you to think of, for the rest of us, I want you to think of one person you know in your life who lives their life, if you like, lost without reference to Jesus. But you love them. And they're special to you. And as I say this prayer now, I'll leave a space where you can just lift your own prayer to God for that person. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for the stories that Jesus told that reveal your heart. Thank you even more for the pictures he left behind that show more about you than words ever could. Give me such a life, Lord God, 
Help me so to live my life that I would leave behind the most compelling picture of who you are. Pictures of love instead of indifference. Pictures of grace instead of in judgment. Pictures of kindness instead of criticism. And especially I pray for that one lost person this morning who doesn't know you. I lift them to you now. And Lord, would you show them through me your reckless love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.